Hello, welcome to the New York Public Library podcast. On each episode, we share some of the great conversations that we're having at the library with authors, artists, and thinkers. My name is Aiden Flax Clark. Last month, composer Philip Glass was here, speaking with Paul Holdengraber, who directs our cultural programs known as Live from the NYPL. Live has featured everyone from Mike Tyson to Helen Mirren to Bill Clinton. Philip Glass, as I'm sure you know, is easily one of the most influential composers of his time. He's one of the giants of 20th century American music. Among his many works, probably some of the best known are Music in 12 Parts, Symphony No. 9, the score to the film Koyana Skatsi, the opera Einstein on the Beach, and Glassworks. Not too long ago, Philip Glass published his memoir, Words Without Music, which is a book I really recommend. Honestly, his life has been amazing, and he tells the seemingly endless stories of his adventures in an absolutely enthralling voice. Glass also turned 80 this year, and not surprisingly, there's been a lot of reflection on and celebration of his pretty remarkable career. He talked with Holden Graber about his musical lineage, the wide range of artists, writers, and musicians with whom he's carried on friendships and collaborations, as well as a grab bag of subjects that range from drawing trees to driving taxis to meeting Charlie Parker. They listen to a few pieces of music as well, which we've had to edit down for copyright purposes. Glass seems to have one of the drier senses of humor you'll ever hear, and I really love listening to him talk. I hope you do too. Here it is, Philip Glass with Paul Holden Graber, live from the NYPL. I'd like to take, take you on a journey. The journey is a journey of your, what one might say, a life filled with epiphanies. And you speak about, instead of speaking about influence, you speak about lineage. And you say, in this extraordinary book, Words Without Music, you say, I sometimes hear about music described in terms of originality or breakthrough but my personal experience is quite different. For me, music has always been about lineage. The past is reinvented and becomes the future, but the lineage is everything. And I'd like you to unpack that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's the simplest way we can talk about a biological uh, link that we the links that we have, which connects us to everything. Uh, but uh, the thing about lineage that's different is that uh, uh, very often the lineage is something that we, we've chosen. Another, and but before choosing it, we have to become aware that there's something to choose. So, uh, you know. Uh, when I first began writing music, I really didn't know where to begin. Uh, I picked up some scores by Charles Ives and Schoenberg, and I looked at them, and I tried to imitate them, but I didn't. Uh, in fact, they, they really were not my lineage, but I didn't know that at the time. I had to start somewhere. I began with that. Uh, but uh, the, the lineage is something that, that became revealed to me through through the through several remarkable teachers. And that's another part of it. I think uh, I was fortunate, I mean, really fortunate in, in that, that, that I met uh, at, a, at a critical time uh, in, in my life, when I was in my uh, mid-20s, I had been through 
the Peabody Conservative and through University of Chicago and Juilliard. University of Chicago at the age well, of 15. Well, whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, but I have been through that. But uh, my great teachers I met when I was 25. But what is interesting, and we'll get to those great teachers, is, as you say, lineage presupposes that you can recognize who these great teachers are. And there's something in your life. Well, as yeah, a that's a very good point, Paul. The fact is that, uh, <laughs> that without a profound respect for your own uh, education, to what degree that you have it, uh, you won't, you'll never be able to cross that, uh, cross that threshold. Uh, uh, so, uh, I don't know, that sounds like a, a rather menacing thing to say, because it seems that, that without that you can't. But I do believe, actually, think that that's true. And that, uh, I don't fact, think it's menacing. I think it, it presupposes that you should be alert. Well, that's a good word. Alert is sim similar to being awakened. Yeah. Uh, awakened is a, a good prelude to alertness. Uh, but but uh, it's, all, it's all interesting. Uh, uh, for me, uh, I discovered uh, the lineage of music. But, and, and lineages are many other things, too. And uh, whether it could be poetry, or uh, I was very, uh, I've always been uh, attracted to poetry. I've, used it often in, in, in works of mine. And I preferred, in fact, uh, poets that I know, so that they, they were living poets, mostly. Though I've, uh, I could, I, I've, as I've said some things, uh, working on plays of Shakespeare, there's always a song. And, uh, and I always, so I've done many Shakespeare Settings, but, but that wasn't, uh, and it was interested in me in one way, but I was really interested in, in the, the poet as a, as a, uh, as a voice, as, as a sound. And uh, I combined it very often with, with, uh, with, with music. Well, that was the only thing I could do. I couldn't, uh, uh, I, I couldn't dance. I couldn't write poetry. I couldn't paint. There's only one thing I could do, Paul. The only thing I could do was music. That's what, that's what I ended up doing. It seems but, to have turned out all right. Well, maybe so. But I, I regret that I never could dance. I would like to have written poetry, and it would be wonderful if I could even draw a tree or a cat or something. I can't do any of those things. I was talking to a friend of mine once, and I was working uh, as an assistant for an artist, and, and I said, you know, I was the assistant in the studio, and I said, you know, I can't, I can't draw anything, I can't even, I can't draw, I can't do anything. He said, I can teach you to draw. Did I tell you this? You've heard this. I, I, I know the story, anyway. I know the story, but not everybody does. Okay. So I said, okay, but they will. They will find they will. out. Perhaps they will. Yeah. So I, I said, uh, he said, I can teach you to draw. And I said, how can you do that? He said, well, I'll teach you to see. And when you see, then you can draw. And I saw, I, he didn't say any more than that. And immediately, I thought that, 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 uh, that of course, painting is about seeing, that um, poetry is about speaking, dancing is about moving, music is about hearing. And uh, it became, that became revealed to me immediately so in that way. All the senses are implied. 
Yes, in a way, you see, I felt that uh, I, I poured my efforts into music because the only, it was my only chance to do anything, actually. You know, when I, when I, when I heard this story, or rather read it, um, it, it made me think of the very, nearly the very beginning of Rainer Maria Rilke's book, Malt, uh, Ma, The Notebooks of Malt Loritz Brigge, where he says, I think I should begin to work now that I'm beginning to see. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that friend of yours, we might as well mention his name, mm -hmm. Richard Serra, told you, you know, look, I'll teach you how to well, look. I never got the lessons, by the way. Pardon? I, he never, we never took the time to teach me because I was too busy so, moving the sculpture around. I know. So I never did learn to draw. So, so he never did teach you no. how to draw. A so you still don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> but you don't mind. I don't have any time for it now. Uh, but I've, uh, I've taken dance classes. I've uh, done a little bit of public speaking. I mean, this kind, this kind of thing. Uh, with, when I travel with uh, Laurie Anderson, we do, we do concerts together. And she makes me read, read poetry. So I've, done, I've learned to do that. Uh, so I've have some excellent, but we're getting back to the idea of the, uh, now we're talking about lineages that I don't have very much experience with. The one that uh, I, uh, I can, it's not, it doesn't just have to happen, if, in my case it happens in music, but uh, lineages can happen in all kinds of things. It can happen for people that are cooks, for people that are, make dresses, for people who teach, well, what, for people what? who, uh, do in interesting conversations like this that you do. There's a lineage to what you do. I don't know if you're worried about that, but... Um, <laughs> there, there is a, a reason why I do what I do. So lineage, um, um, lineage covers a lot of things. A lot of but, things, but, and, but and the, unsuspected influences, but, too. But the important thing about lineage is, is, is uh, the connectedness. Right. It's, it's through the, uh, the power of the lineage, if we can talk about it that way. And I think that's the, 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 the real truth of the matter, is that the power of the lineage is what empowers the, the artist. Uh, if you uh, accept it that way, which I have, uh, Though, the curious thing is that when I first began writing the, the pieces that I got known for, people, no one, no one saw the lineage. I saw it, but no one else did. So people thought, not everybody, but, but uh, other musicians thought that I had, uh, I had never been to music school. I mean, all kinds of funny, that I, I, I was advised many times that I should go back and I should start to learn music from the beginning, which I, I had to. Done already. But I, I love I love the story of Cage saying John Cage saying to you, "It's good, but there are just too many notes." He never said it was good. No, he okay. Don't don't make it better than it was. Okay. Uh, he said, "Philip, too many notes." And they said, "John, I'm one of your children, whether you like it or not." <laughs> Again, lineage. And he went like he said, "Oh." I had stabbed him. <laughs> but what you said was true. I, 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 I enjoyed the, 
So I enjoy talking with him. I like being with him. I like reading his books. Uh, for many of uh, my generation, uh, he articulated a, 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 in a very clear way, uh, we, we put it this way, he gave you permission to do things that, that you were not given permission to do at, at the conservatories. Uh, uh, he gave you permission to do something different. And uh, he, he uh, empowered a lot of uh, my generation, that was quite, quite long ago, I mean, I met him in my 20s and 30s, so that was quite a long time ago. But uh, uh, there was a time when uh, that first book of his silence, by the way, he didn't like to talk about the books. We were supposed to talk about the music. And one of the things that, and I discovered very early in my acquaintance with him that, that he didn't like to even be told that, he, that you liked the books. You were supposed to talk about the music. Of course, I wasn't interested in the music. I was interested in the books. That was, so we got off to not such a good start anyway. But, uh, uh, but, but, uh, the, the most interesting uh, uh, lesson that we got from it, and I say we in a generation, he told us that the audience completed the work. That the work did not have an independent existence like a, uh, the, 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 the Cortes of Beethoven, if no one listened to them, they didn't exist. They existed because of the transaction of listening. Uh, and that lesson is huge, was a huge lesson. It was lesson. for everybody. Yeah. Uh, it, from that, you could begin to understand Beckett, Genet. You could, you could enter into all kinds of strange uh, things that w w might have seemed strange, but after a while became very... Why do you mention Beckett? Well, Beckett was, uh, uh, it was an important uh, uh, contact for me when I was in Paris. I was uh, with a young group of people. We started a theater company, and somehow, uh, I don't know why, he, 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 he was interested in us, and he let us do his pieces. And I was the composer in the company, so I, uh, I did about eight or nine scores for plays of his. And I didn't know him very well, but, uh, uh, but in a way I did, because... Uh, uh, the issue for us was, was what would the music sound like? I had no, you know, I started from, I had the place, I had the pieces, but there was no, there was nothing to guide me in that way at all. So, but in that way, though I didn't know John at that time, I knew his books, but I didn't know John at the time. But, uh, uh, in the presence of, I could say, put it this way, in the presence of his work, which I could hear through the actors. Well, I could read it also, but we were, we were putting on plays, mind you. We, it wasn't an academic exercise. But in the presence of the, of the, of the words that were spoken, uh, I began to hear the music. I, I, I just waited for the music to come to me, and it did. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, I sometimes asked for guidance, and I didn't get any. Uh, we did one piece, what was it called? 
I think it was called Company, I'm not sure what it, which press it was. And oh, it, was a, it was a monologue. Uh, um, Frederick Newman did the monologue. It was a company called, later called Mavu Mons, but we were in Paris at the time. And he did a solo piece. He, he took, he let us do this. We took, we took uh, excerpts from his novels. Anything we wanted, we could take. And he said, can we use it? He said, yes, 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 just take it. And uh, he made a, a monologue out of this thing. And then uh, I, I sent a message back to him because we, we didn't really hang out with him. One of us was close to him and we could, we could communicate with him. And I said, well, um, where does the music go? And I, got, and I got a message back. He said, in the internecies of the, of, the, of the text, the music should come. That would be in the, the opening of, the, te- opening of the, t- the phrases. And that's all he told me. <laughs> so that's what so I did. It gave you a lot of freedom. In some well, ways. it gave me freedom, but it also gave me uh, another uh, problem too, which is I, I had to take him into account. Uh, uh, I'd like to go back to your early years, to, to your childhood. Um, you describe how you played mental chess with your father. Well. Uh, when he was a young, when he was, uh, I guess I was nine or ten, and when he was nine or ten, he told me that uh, he grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and he and his brothers would stand on the corner selling newspapers, and uh, it was, it could be cold in those days in Baltimore, it could be even, and uh, they would pass their time together uh, by playing mental chess. Uh, that's just, they just, the names of the notes, pawn to king four, pawn to knight, queen, bishop three, all this kind of thing. You, I'm sure you all know how to do that. Or anyway, you can find out. But, but by the way, mental checkers is much more difficult. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, uh, I tried to do, uh, but anyway, so uh, he, he explained to me what he did and then, uh, then we began to do it together. But uh, what, he, what happened is that you had to visualize the chessboard, uh, which I, uh, after a while you can do that. You see, it's not that hard to do, but, and then you can, you can see, the, if you can visualize the chessboard, you can see the pieces and then you can do it. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at it, but uh, I could actually keep the image in my, I could, I could see it. In, in, uh, the, the main thing was that yeah. I could see it. I wasn't a particularly good chess player, but, but you could visualize could where, where, where. <laughs> but, uh, so we did that. And it, and made, it made me think if, if that Why did had, you think of that? Well, it, I, I just found it interesting uh, and was wondering, you know, did that at all have an effect on, on your oh, life? Oh, definitely and, did. Yeah. And how, and, you know, there's a, there's well, a, a, a novel I love uh, by Stefan Zweig called The Chess Player, uh, where the, I think it's called The Royal Game in, in English with this man who has to leave uh, Europe um, in, in the late 1930s, and the only way he can really survive is by playing chess yeah. in his head. 
anyway, that, that is a digression which takes us afar. Well, you know, this is but, a, it's but interesting that you, uh, the, the act of visualizing is a, is a special kind of mental development. We don't, if we don't practice it, we may not know how to do it. Uh, some people can do it. Uh, you can learn to do it, but you may never learn to do it. Another, another lesson from your father um, you, you got by listening, by listening to music with him. Mm. Um, he had this record store, which yeah. I think is incredibly important and love to know a little bit about it, a little bit more than, than you've written. He had a record store and then sometimes surreptitiously while he was listening to music, you would come and, and listen with him. Yes, well I was very young, so I was supposed to be asleep. But uh, when he came back from his work, which was, uh, it was common for him to work from nine in the morning till nine in the evening. That was the, this general hour or so. He wouldn't settle down to listen to music till 10 o'clock at night. And what a remarkable man, after a day in a music store, he would go home and listen to music because then he could be alone with the music. And he brought music home to listen to at first, um, he was actually uh, was a, a car mechanic at first, and uh, he sold some records out of the car shop. But after a while, he got rid of the cars and just began selling the records. And uh, he, he liked that better. But he didn't have any education at all, so he would. His idea was if he had records in the store and he couldn't sell them, he wanted to see what was wrong with them. So he would bring them home and listen to them. His idea was that if he could figure out what was wrong with them, then he would buy the right records and then the, see that would, the, the, things would be better that way. Um, but what happened, the pieces they brought home were mostly modern pieces. Uh, it could be Shostakovich or Stravinsky. I'm talking about the 40s now. Yeah, no, which... It's quite a long time ago, yeah. but uh, at that time it, it could have been Bartok. Uh, uh, and he he would bring these home and he would listen to them over and over again. And after all, he began to like it. He became kind of an expert on modern music. And his little store in Baltimore became known for a place you could go to find modern music because he, he would, once he knew what it was, he would try to, he, he, would, he would say, Louis, come here, take this record home. If you don't like it, you can bring it back. Of course, they never brought it back. <laughs> they would have been embarrassed to bring it back, but he forced them to buy these modern pieces. He said, you're going to really like this. But I think a couple of things that are immediately so interesting is, first of all, that in those years, he was interested in modern music and selling well, it, and that you probably, through his way of, of listening, learned how to how to pay attention, how to listen. Well, we, in the end, we didn't, have, we didn't always agree about these things. No, I'm sure not. And uh, I, I tell a story in the book, can I tell that? It's a funny story, but uh, I, I became the buyer for the store just about the time when I left home, but I was 14 or 15, and I was now the record buyer for the store. I knew everything in the store already. I began, my brother and I began when we were 11 and 12, so we knew everything in the store. We began, by, by the way, you'll love this, we began by doing inventories of the music. That's how we learned what was in the store. We had to write down how many copies and the name of the composer. And then we, eventually we had to know what was in the record. So that someone came in and they said, 
they wanted a Beethoven Third Symphony or Fifth Symphony or whatever he wanted. I said, well, do you like it fast or do you like it slow? I said, well, <laughs> like it fast, you can have Toscanini. You want it slow, we'll give you Furtwangler. Well, what do you like? You know, so I, I, so not, I also had to know how to do that. But uh, so I, I was getting my own ideas about music at this time. And, and, and I would just, uh, in those days, you see, you would, you would uh, fill out the order forms and then send them to the company. And about two weeks later, the, the records would arrive. And uh, we were always interested in the records because uh, though we hadn't heard some of the music, uh, if it was modern pieces, I often hadn't heard them. But we, we liked to see the covers and everything. You know, we were open. And so uh, the Juilliard Quartet had just recorded the, the Schoenberg String Quartets. And um, uh, I saw that the Columbia Records had done it, and I ordered six copies of it. And uh, my brother, Marty, myself, and Ben, my father, the, two weeks later the records came and we opened them up and we, we called him Ben. Ben saw it and said, Kid, what's this? I said, uh, that's Schoenberg. He said, you got six of them? <laughs> I said, he's a very important composer. I said, he, people should have this in their library. He said, He just shook his head. Said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to send them up. Let's put them up here. And when we sold the last one, I want you to tell me. So I went off to university and I came back Christmas and different times. And over the next four or five years, I counted. And finally, about six or eight years later, I came back and the last one was gone. <laughs> and I said, Ben. The Schoenbergs are gone. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. Did you learn the lesson? I said, the lesson? What's the lesson? He said, I can sell anything if I have enough time. <laughs> That's one to ponder, isn't it? Yeah. Ben was a very smart guy. Um, any rate, uh, but uh, uh, so we did. We had differences of opinions about the music, but I did uh, uh, live to. He lived to see uh, one of my uh, my first record of music, music with changing parts. Uh, we published it myself, and and uh, I was down in Baltimore a year or so later, and I looked under, went to the modern music section, and looked under G. I found two copies of it there. <laughs> Didn't buy six. <laughs> you learned the lesson. But um, a passage from your book, um, On the Train at 15, on your way to Chicago for college. Some shift had already begun. Music was no longer a metaphor for the real world somewhere out there. It was becoming the opposite. The out there stuff was a metaphor, and the real part was, and is to this day, the music. Night trains can make those things happen. Hmm. The sounds of daily life 
were entering me almost unnoticed. I'd like you to unpack this thought. I think it's such an interesting one. The out there, what is real? Hmm. Hmm. Well, the question of me is that uh, we were going to talk about that later. But, uh, because I was always curious about where music came from. Do you want to po come, come back to that? No, 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 no. I want you to come, oh. come to what... Okay. I, I mean, if you want to come back to no, it, we can we repeat can talk it about later. It uh, uh, I think, actually, I began writing music because oh, I knew music already. I had studied... By the way, I had started at the Peabody Conservatory when I was quite young. I did flute and I did percussion. And uh, 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 in those days, uh, a, a young fellow could get on a streetcar and you can go halfway across the city by yourself. There was no... Life was very peaceful in the, in the 40s, actually. For, so that uh, I, would take the I would take the trolley downtown and I would take the lessons. I would go home in the dark. Uh, so I, I already, uh, I knew about music, but at one point I began to ask myself, where did, where did music come from? So then uh, I decided that I would start to write music because if I wrote music, I figured that I would learn where it came from. But that turned out not to be true. You know, it reminds me of the wonderful line of Leonard Cohen, who said that if he knew where inspiration came from, he would go there more often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We got along very well. But this question about where music came from, we were talking well, a little bit I, earlier about mentors. You asked it to so many different people, and. Ravi Shankar in I asked, every, I, asked, I, I asked other people. I asked... Uh, 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 I asked Ravi Shankar once. We were sitting... Uh, I had been working for... It's a magnificent for, story. Uh, that, it's a magnificent story, what he answered. Uh, I, I had been working as his assistant in Paris. Uh, he was film, scoring a film, and I was, I was notating it. I was writing it down giving it to the player so they could play it. And I, uh, that friendship lasted until he died. I mean, on, on, not that many years ago. I, I, I must have known him. I guess I, I probably knew him for the next 60 years. And, uh, uh, but at this early point, I, I was sitting with him in his hotel room and uh, I had come from Paris. He was in London doing, playing some concerts. I wanted to hear some, I wanted to spend some more time with him. So uh, I went to see him. He was sitting cross-legged on the bed. And, and I said, Ravishi, where does music come from? And next to him was a photograph of a gentleman in, in uh, Indian clothes, standing, not sitting, not still standing. And he turned to the picture. I was, let's say that you were, that, that was where I was. And he was here and he turned to the picture and he did a full prostration to the picture. And he said, thanks to my guru, 
The music has come through him into me. <laughs> Pretty good answer, huh? Uh, and that is a good answer. Uh, the trouble was that those answers didn't last very long for me. Within a few years, I, I wanted to find another uh, uh, explanation for it. And in fact, I went through a whole, uh, I spent the rest of my life trying to uh, answer that, and I still did. I, I have even recent, very recently even have a new, new answer, but. What uh, is it? Well, I can't tell you right now. But uh, <laughs> let me take it. Will you tell me later? Uh, perhaps. But uh, I'll tell you the one just before that okay. one. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> okay. But I had gone through this, the music as language, music as style, all the usual things. Music as history. Music as? History. History. Music as, you can say even lineage, getting come back to that. Though, though that's, that's a, a much more loaded question, but that doesn't really answer, it doesn't answer the question of where it comes from. Um, uh, and I was, I, I, I had, this was only a few years ago, and I was in a situation somewhat like this. I was talking to some, actually some students I don't normally teach, I don't teach uh, music school, but if I do a concert at a school, the students will ask me to talk to them, and I will. And someone said to Mr. Glass, where does music come from? <laughs> and I said, without thinking, you know, and this is the best part. I didn't know what I was going to say. I just said, music is a place. It's as real as Chicago or New York. And when you go to that place, that's where the music is. I thought that was a... The, the beauty of that was that it made something ephemeral. It gave it the concreteness which I experience, but which uh, the descriptions don't provide. In other words, to me, music is a solid thing. It's a, it's a dimensional, has dimensional character to it. And, pl and place makes me also think about, place makes me think also of perhaps a, um, an invented home. Well, I can listen. Uh, it was very useful. I was, uh, not too long ago, or maybe three or four years, four, five years ago, that we did a new production of My Son on the Beach, and I hadn't heard it for a while, and I uh, was looking at the music again and thinking about it. And I asked myself, where did this music come from? And uh, I said, I've, where, did I, where did I hear that music? And? Well, and I, I, be, I thought about it. I knew that I had heard that music, but not in the form that I wrote it, but it, in another way. I, I heard, uh, let's say, uh, the, the source of the music, but it wasn't the actual music, it was the source of the music. And I remembered, uh, and then I, I was thinking about this, and I said, I remembered uh, 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 a musician named Lenny Tristano. Do you know who he is? He was a jazz player. He was blind. And uh, I was sitting in, at home, and I went to my library, and I found 
uh, I had a, a collection of, of old tapes and things like that. And I found a piece uh, called The Lineup. And I put it on, listened to it with the headphones, and said, oh, that was the train. I knew that I heard that the train came from that piece. But I don't think anyone else would have thought that. So, I mean, you've in so many ways answered my question. And now you, you mention a jazz musician. And you, your interest in jazz is, is great. And there's one passage in the book that I particularly love. is a passage about Bud Powell. And you say he punched out the tunes almost the way a boxer would punch out and use his fists. He was a fantastic player and he became my favorite because of his personal orientation towards the piano. He and the piano weren't adversaries, but he was able to physically pull the music out of the instrument. Yeah. If we could listen to audio number three, please. Which one? in Chicago, there was a place uh, I think on 53rd Street called the Beehive. I was very young. I couldn't get into the club. You were 16. 15, At that time, 16. I was probably 16. But I was listening already when I was 15, but I'd, uh, I'd heard not that, I hadn't heard that much jazz at my father's store, but I began to hear it in Chicago. And uh, I went there to the, and I would stand outside and looking in, because I couldn't go in. And, and Bud Palm played there very often. Uh, Bud Palm, uh, Theonis Monk played there, these people played. And um, finally, one, uh, I would just stand there. The guy at the door said, okay, kid, come on in, go ahead. He said, okay, sit here next to me. You can't drink anything, you can't say anything, just listen. And I, that's how I could, got to hear jazz at the first. So I could go there when I was way underage. And uh, I would see him play. And that, that description, that, yeah. well, the music you heard, it's, it, 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 he encountered music. He didn't, <laughs> he, he, he encountered it and he, he tore it out of, out of the air with his, with his hands. Um, the, the piece we heard is called Tempus Fugit. Yeah, um, time flies. Pardon? Time flies. Time flies. Come on, you know Latin. I, I love your, your very brief comment also about Charlie Parker, where you say to me he was the uh, Bach of bebop. Oh, sure. No, no question about that. Um, so I, uh, I was very young then, but, I, but I, 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 interestingly, I had, uh, I, I had no inclination to be a jazz player at all. I'd love to hear the music. What I was interested in was in writing music. I didn't, uh, I didn't have the, at that point, I didn't have the, uh, the piano, pianistic technique to do that. I began with the flute. I, I switched to piano when I was 15. But it was, uh, I didn't really become a piano player until I was at Juilliard a few years later. And I took piano as a minor and I began playing the piano. Uh, but 
at the beginning, I, I didn't think of it that way. But, but then now in New York, uh, I was older by then, and uh, uh, these people were still around. Uh, uh, Ornette Coleman had come up from Louisiana with his plastic saxophone. I got to meet him. He was living down on, on, in Soho on, on, uh, on Prince. He had a place there. And um, uh, uh, I, I somehow I got to know him, and I would go over there and listen. We would talk about this and that, and uh, uh, I would go to hear him play. But I, 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 I understood that the jazz players were the, they were the true avant-garde of music. Mm, that's... Uh, they couldn't teach anybody. They had, there, was, there was no, they couldn't make a living. Barely, you know, they, they, they played, um, it was a vocation that was so uh, profoundly uh, capturing, had captured them so profoundly they couldn't do anything else. Uh, uh, so uh, I saw them, uh, after that, uh, I felt that the jazz players and the, and the, uh, the poets, and they were connected, of course, uh, when I first met Allen Ginsberg, he was in a jazz club <laughs> reciting poetry. <laughs> he was 29 and I was, I think I was 19. Or he was just a little bit, nine or 10 years older than me. But uh, uh, this, uh, he would call it this, uh, our, this American language is what he called it. Let's, let's listen to audio number one if we could. Wichita Vortex Sutra. Uh, we did a, we used to tour a lot that was in the, in the 90s. He died in 97. But we began in, in the eight, 1980s to uh, do concerts together on the road. And uh, eventually I said that we should do an opera together. And it was called The Hydrogen Jukebox. That was one of the pieces in it. Uh, it was for an ensemble and we, we staged it. It was, it had all the trappings of, of it, it, we never played in an opera house, but it, uh, and I don't really count it as an opera, but it was. It was. Uh, uh, I left one part in it for Alan and myself. The rest we had singers and we had other people to play. But um, there's one moment just before the uh, intermission uh, between part one and two where we come out and we would do this together. And then what happened? Um, eventually, uh, he wasn't always going on tour with us. So he recorded that. He recorded just the voice. And uh, some, well, if he wasn't there, then I would play the recording and I would play with him. Uh, after he died in 97, I didn't play that piece for about, oh, maybe five or six years, seven years. And I remember that I had the tape. I was at home alone and I put the tape on and I began playing. It was like he was there. So we've, now I've played it quite often with him. Uh, recently I have been doing some concerts with uh, Laurie. We use other poets. We, Leonard is another one. So we don't have a recording of Leonard, but, uh, we, but she can read him very well. 
uh, Leonard Cohen. And the other one, uh, we have a beautiful recording of uh, Lou Reed's last poem. And we, we use that. So uh, uh, I, I call these the dead poets. <laughs> I play with them when they're alive, and now I'm playing with them when they're dead. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in the story of you learning how to compose in part by learning how to transcribe. And when you talk about having to write out mm. the Ninth Symphony of Mahler. Yeah, I did that. I mean, it was kind of desperation, but, but not but, really, but, but not it, completely. It, because I, in part I was educated by Jesuits, yeah. and they, they kept thinking that there was a real relationship between the hand and the mind. Well, uh, you see that if you, and that's so common to see it these days, but in museums you'll see people painting uh, Vermeers, or they'll, they'll be trying to paint it, or anything. But uh, it was common, uh, one of the common practices to learn orchestration in another, several generations ago was to copy out a, a symphony of somebody. I picked Mahler because uh, uh, he had such a good, I really wanted to understand the symphony better and I figured that that was a good place to be. And copying I, I is, copied is, it out. is also a way of slowing down. Well, you can see what's going on. Uh, I also, um, at my days at music school, I would go to the orchestra rehearsals and I would, whatever they were, I would find out what they were rehearsing, I would bring the score and I would follow it. So that was, uh, but then I would get it, this is really in a way, we're talking, getting back to the idea of lineage, this is when I began to build my own lineage. You know, if it was with Powell, it, was, uh, it could be uh, Mahler, it could be uh, uh, Bessie Smith, it could be anybody. Not anybody, let's, it, it, it had to be particular people. Let's pull up image number two. Where did you get all these things? I, I, I didn't know he was going to do this stuff, by no. the way. And he didn't know what I was going to say. No, that's, okay, like, that, that's uh, what's exciting. Now I want to hear what it is. That's oh, that's Moondog. Yeah, I mean, I, I just... Yeah. Now, Moondog, he had, this is what he said. Now, that's Moondog there. Uh, he used to be at the, what was it, the uh, Waldorf uh, Hotel, was it 58th Street? Uh, when I first met him, he, he, uh, he was a musician and he would, um, but he would sell you poetry too. For a quarter you could buy a poem from him. And, uh, but, uh, and he was blind. He was blind. And uh, he was a musician. And at a certain point, I read in the village voice that he was looking for a place to live, so I, I went and said, look, Moondog, I've got a, uh, my cousin, Gene and I had gotten, found an empty building on, you can't do this anymore, but believe it or not, there were empty buildings like uh, on the corner of 9th Avenue and 23rd Street. And we, the, the landlord was, uh, owned the bar downstairs, and as far as I could tell, he spent most of his time sitting at one of those booths just drinking. And we talked to him, he said, you know, if you let us fix up this building, we'll fix it up for you, and then, then we'll, we won't pay any rent when we're fixing it, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it straightened out for you. And he said, okay, okay, you go do it. 
So we actually had this place free for a couple of years. And I had a room upstairs where I used to rehearse in. So I said, Mundo, why don't you come on down? We have a, have a place for you. He said, oh, I don't know. He said, oh, let me come and start. He said, I'm going to take a look at it. Of course, he was blind. So I was, I'm so I'm standing up there on, looking out the window one, a few days later. I'm looking down at the intersection. I see this, this Viking walking down. Boom, 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 boom. He's walking down the street. And very tall. You can see his... Uh, that's one of his shorter hats. Some of them got really tall. And, and when he didn't wear the hat, he was 6'6". Six, six. So he easily could hit seven feet. Uh, and I saw he was, he'd walk down the street, boom, and he'd come to the light. And I saw him coming down uh, Ninth Avenue. I see, I see, what's he doing? And I know he's coming to see me. But, and he would come to the, he would come to the, uh, to the intersection and he would stop. He would wait, the light would change, and he would walk across, boom, 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 boom. And I saw him do that, and he came up, and he rang the bell, and um, I said, yeah, he said, Philip, you have a room here? And I said, yeah, well, come on, I'll show you. And I took him upstairs, and, um, and I said, by the way, I saw you coming down the street. How did you know, uh, how'd you do that? He said, you're blind, right? He said, I'm blind, I can't see, but... He said, but I learned how to, he said, I can hear the, the signals. He said, I can tell when the lights are changing. He can tell, I can tell what direction they're changing. He could tell the red light, he could hear the sound of the green light and the red light. And when he heard the green light, he would walk across the street. It's so extraordinary. <laughs> but it's also... Well, so, so he comes up, that was like, so I had a big room where I rehearsed and I said, you can have this room. He said, he said no, I can't, I can't use this room, it's too big. I said, well, what do you want? He said, I need a much smaller room. I need a room where I can touch the walls. Oh, so oh, that, there's a room right over here. We can do that. He went in there and he touched He said, okay, I, I can stay here. He stayed with, for me for one year. One year. And we, we started doing music together and we had a lot of fun. I had, we've, I had a little quartet with him and John Gibson and Steve Reich and myself. We would play his rounds. We would do that together. But he would, and he would come in, and then I was re rehearsing in the next room, so he was hearing my rehearsals. And he said, uh, he said, Philip, he said, we have to talk about your music a little bit. And I said, okay. He said, you've got to study more Bach and Beethoven. I said, Moondog, I, do, I know Bach and Beethoven. He said, no, you've got to do more. He said, uh, he said, no. He said, they are, they are giants. They were the giants, Bach and Beethoven. He said, I am walking in their footsteps, but really, they were giants, and I would leap after them. Their, their footsteps were so large that I would leap after, I'm leaping after them. That's that he, that's he taught me about lineage. Again, yeah. What? It was a beautiful lesson in lineage. It's such a what? beautiful way of expressing yeah. it. And he's so big to begin with, when, so when he took a big step, and I said, oh, and Beethoven and Bach, they were even bigger than him. He, he, he saw them as these giants. Other mentors, hmm? other mentors for you, and this will, I'm going to pull up an image, image number one, and um, talk about this moment 
in the book where you talk about the Phillips collection and you say the effect was mm. of an organic pulsating canvas. I could and did sit in front of these paintings for long stretches, bathing in their strengths and wisdom. Mm. I must say I'm... These are Rothko paintings. Yeah, I'm more and more... I was going to say, Roscoe is more and more appealing to but me. But I don't think that's the Phillips Gallery. Where'd you get that picture? It might be, <laughs> I, might, I might have gotten the wrong picture. No, not the wrong picture. I, no, no, no. no you got the, uh, but uh, that doesn't look like the Phillips Gallery to me. But uh, the Apologies. Ones, uh, <laughs> that's okay. Next time I'll do better. But, but see, but I was referring to the darker paintings. Uh, well, you know, the, the darker page, if, if we can put, it won't be in a gallery, but it's an image that particularly speaks to me. Let me see. Um, I'm sure it's not right. Oh, yeah, there you go. Is it? That's a Rothko. Okay, it is a Rothko. Uh, uh, well, what do, you, what do you want me to I say? I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing he said. I, I, don't, I have nothing that I want you to say, but what, what Rothko said which I, I find extraordinary. He says, that there's only one thing I fear in life, my friend. One day the black will swallow the red. <laughs> well, it definitely happened. It's been going for a long time. Uh, 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 in his own Washington head. was, uh, uh, in those days it was, it was 40 miles from Baltimore. It's still 40 miles from Baltimore, except you can now do 40 miles in about 30 minutes. In those days, it took more like an hour to get from Baltimore to Washington. And I, um, there was some paintings that you could go to the museum in Baltimore, but the big collections were in Washington. And I went, um, I went very regularly to look at paintings. I don't know why. I couldn't paint myself, but I was drawn to painting. And, uh, the Phillips Collection, uh, by the way, I've played uh, several times at that. Yeah. You know, they have concerts there. And I, uh, I actually have played concerts at the Phillips Gallery years. I mean, I'm, we're talking about 60 years later. I, I, they were playing a concert, which is really kind of, re for me, it was remarkable. Uh, and the same paintings are there. Uh, a lot of, uh, they had the Americans, uh, uh, but they, they had, uh, they had uh, Soutine, they had... Uh, some of the uh, very expressionistic paintings, uh, impressionistic, but I would go and uh, you could, in those days, now we're talking about, I was maybe 16 or 17, um, so that was 1953, 54. I didn't know anything much about painting, but I could, I could spend hours. I could, yeah, yeah. sitting and, and like that. comes back to something we'll, We'll, we'll speak about in a moment, which has to do with, with concentration and attention. And um, I'd like to, for us to listen and, and watch video number one. Um, it's, I, I will say before you put it on that playing extracts of your work really doesn't really work. Um, in, in some way, it's a little ludicrous because when one should spend the three hours immersed. But here we are um, probably not going to spend the next three hours, so forgive me.
So that's the trial from uh, Einstein. You're looking at the staging and design of Baum Wilson, and that's the music. I think it. it um, I mean, it's hard to say something about it, but. Well, uh, I, 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 if you're making the point of the painting, yeah, there, there, that's a good point. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about. Uh, Paintings are, live in the present. Uh, music can create the illusion of the past and the future. Uh, if uh, painters who have memory problems don't have any problem painting, because it's always the present tense. Painting exists in the present tense. Now, you're making another point about uh, how do we experience them? We can experience them in time, but the paintings themselves won't change. Uh, our experiences uh, can be hugely modified. Uh, by, by our by, own passage yeah, of time. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But basically what you're doing, you're lending your own history, your own sense of present and future and past. It's, a, it's on loan to the painting. It's on loan. On loan. <laughs> How can it be any other way? For example, I, I got in very involved with, uh, uh, with, uh, with film at some point, and I got very interested in, in uh, combining live performance with film. Now, th now this will tell you. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it, but I've done a number of pieces where La Belle La Belle of Cocteau, where we play the music in front of it, and we have the singers, and I've substituted the, the, the voices of the singers for the voices. We've turned the, actually what we've done, uh, it was, wasn't easy to get the permission, but I got the permission to turn the volume down, off actually, and I created another soundtrack. Now, what happens then, you'll see that the point is this. When you're watching the picture, at first, um, there's an ensemble playing, it's right behind, uh, we'll be playing here. Michael Reisman will be conducting. You'll be sitting where I'm sitting, and someone else will be sitting here. There, there were six of us playing, and right beneath it are the singers. Behind them are the players on the, the screen. So what happens then? It takes. It's a strange thing. If you, some of you maybe have seen it, but uh, we've done it very often. It takes five or six minutes for an audience to figure out what's going on. At first. They see the picture and they see the people singing, but they don't connect it. At a certain point, it almost always takes about six minutes, and I can hear the whole audience going, oh. <laughs> that must be a moment. It's an amazing moment. And at that moment, the live performer has become part of the, uh, of the experience of so the... So what happened in that O? What happens is that they, they've lent the present, the, their presence as, as, as live artists, they've lent it to a film which is a mechanically reproduced object. It's on loan. <laughs> and we can do it any time we, we put, and it doesn't come out always the same. Uh, there are differences of the tempo, there's slight, uh, 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 
We don't use a quick track. But loan also uh, implies that we don't own it. Well, that's right. But the film doesn't own it either. However, for that 86-minute experience, which is the, uh, the length of the film and, and the music that we play with it, uh, they've become one, they've, they've become united in that way. And the word loan also makes me think of the way in which you were describing John Cage. Oh. You know, that it's so much also about what happens to the audience. That, oh, no, we were able, there's, a, there's, I took a, it to, there's a meeting. I, I took it to another place where I began to think of... Uh, I was actually deconstructing the film with the music. Uh, the reason I did that, actually, I didn't actually know that was going to happen. I got the idea that instead of uh, making a movie out of an opera, I would make an opera out of a movie. I just, just reversed the roles. I didn't actually know that was going to happen. Uh, we began play, performing in front of it. Uh, it wasn't that hard to, to do. Basically, I, I took the film I, uh, and I uh, timed uh, all the... I had, I had the script in front of me. I just timed the words when they came up on the... Uh, when, when, when they... Uh, if I divided into, say, maybe 23 scenes and in any particular scene, it would be maybe four five minutes. Four minutes, it would come to 80 some odd minutes, and that uh, within that scene, I, I, would, I would, when someone's, I, I had, when I had lived in Paris, I had also worked in the doublage, I had to make money, but this, the pathetic, Fulbright, wonderful, wonderful Fulbright, but pathetic in terms of, I didn't have, you had barely enough money to live on. So I would go out to get, I would work at the Rond-Point, where they did the movies, and I got jobs working in the doublage, and I learned how, uh, you, how the labials, how uh, if you have to line up the sounds with the lips. If you do it in a certain way, you can, you, that's what you do when you dub a movie, that's what it's done. So I had learned that accidentally, so to speak. I had just gone there to make a little bit of money. I got 75 francs a day, which was $15, which is, you could eat with that. No, <laughs> that made a big difference. But uh, so then years later, I was thinking about this and, it, and I realized that I, I, knew how to, I knew how to make the sounds match the lips. I went back to what I had done as a kid in Paris and I used the same technique. It's really not that hard. It's like putting uh, hanging clothes on a clothesline. You know where the clothes go. Once you know where the words go, then uh, I, I lined up the paper, I wrote it, I know uh, the page would maybe hold 45 seconds, I would divide it up into measures, I would put the, I would put the labials, uh, I would mark them on the score, and then I made the melodies up to fit. It was very easy. Uh, I, once you, very easy once you thought of it, or, you know, figured it out. But, uh, but, the, but then, what I didn't know was, was going to happen, I didn't know that the, 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 the presence of the, the, of the live performer combined with the recorded performer would create a, 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 a synthesis which was remarkable. 
At one point, at the end of the film, uh, Labette is, is dying because, long story, but Labelle has gone back to see her father and he was supposed to come back a week later. He, she forgets to come, she, can't, she gets back and he says, you have to come back or I'll die and he's dying. And uh, she comes, she rushes and she said, Labette, she said, she said, don't, you know, you have to live. And she said, he says, too late. At that moment, his head is falling on the screen here, and we, we put the singer who plays the bat right where the head is. <laughs> and they, it's the most amazing thing. So we managed to put, a, we managed to insinuate the, the, the living presence. The, the thing, that, the problem with films, it was, it was a wonderful medium, but the problem is, is that uh, uh, it, It's a, it's, a, it's a mechanically reproduced object. You can't dance with it, really. You can't do much with it. You can watch it. You can fall asleep, perhaps. But, uh, but the thing about live performance is that it's, it's, it, it, it shares with the audience the, 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 the singers breathe, they, they have hearts, they, they, they have gestures, they, we, their expression, uh, uh, they've capitulated to a certain degree with the character, but they've also, uh, as I said, insinuated themselves into the character. To be able to take a film and to bring it to life like that is, well, you know, it was an accident, wasn't it? I just got the idea. I didn't know what was going to happen. But once I saw what it was, I understood what it was. But, but so much of what happens to you seems to happen between knowing and unknowing. Oh, it always happens by not knowing. If I know it, there's nothing to do. I mean, why would you do it? You've already, you've already done it. Uh, the, the, the difficulty, uh, this is, again, with lineage can only help to a certain point. The, uh, it's a tremendous uh, basis, uh, it's a base, we can say, on, on which you can build what you like. If you're a sculptor, it'll be a painter, if you're a doctor, whatever the, your lineage is, you'll, you'll, you'll partake of that, that will become what you'll, what you'll be doing. But, uh, um, uh, but the actual, uh, moment of invention, let's say. I would rather use the word invention. Creation seems to me like a, a pretentious word. We don't create very much. I mean, we can say we do. We can create problems, <laughs> for sure, but, but I, don't, I doubt whether we can create art. Uh, uh, that, that, that is a, it's a, it's a, it comes about through the, through the, 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 uh, the, uh, through the lineage and through the, when I said that, that, that it's everything, I truly mean that. That is, it's through becoming, it's, it's when you, bec you, become, uh, you become part of that lineage. At that point, 
uh, it can exist in time. You know, I, I love your um, uh, foreword you wrote to a Chuck Close book. You say, as an artist, you try to go back and create conditions where you can rediscover how you looked at things in a fresh way. You want to be the beginner. It's more fun being a beginner than being a master. It's where the unexpected can happen. Once you're a master, you've become someone who's just making potato chips or whatever, <laughs> and it doesn't matter anymore. For instance, I tried to stay a beginner by working collaboratively, bringing in some new people each time so that it's not possible to do the same thing. I try to create unpredictable conditions where I can't be sure Yes, that's right. Results. That's right. The the the, uh, the, uh, the collaborative, the act of collaboration, and the well, no, there's, there's this, the the part of the rule is though is that you can't work the same the same people all the time, and uh, I discovered that uh, uh, after Bob and I did Einstein, we didn't do a piece together for eight years. I, I absolutely would have nothing to do with them. I mean, we like these other and I recommended composers for him to work with, but I didn't want to do another piece. Uh, I dreaded the idea of doing the return of Einstein or <laughs> the son of Einstein. I didn't want to be trapped. I didn't want to be trapped by this piece of music. So I left it alone and I, I did Satyagraha, which for many people was a profound disappointment at the time because they actually thought they were, they were going to get another Einstein. They didn't. They got they got such a and it it, it was uh, it, it, personally I didn't really care, but I, I understood that it was a big disappointment to some people. Now it doesn't matter because people like Satyagraha and, and they don't even connect it with Einstein. In fact, they're connected by just only a few months later. I began doing the next piece, but uh, 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 this idea of the collaboration. The dangerous thing about collaborations is that, is that if they're successful, uh, you have to abandon them. Because if you work with the same people again, uh, habits, uh, things that were, were, habits start replacing uh, 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 invention. Once the habit is there, uh, it's very hard. Now, there's another problem here. It's very hard to get rid of habits. Uh, to, to a degree, we can't really get rid of them entirely. It's like saying, yeah, how second you? nature. Well, it's like the way you walk. You walk the way you walk. You say, can you walk differently every day? Probably not. But well, we, so we, we place unreasonable demands on ourselves when we say we were going to invent something new. So um, I have to beg you to come back um, because there's so much that we, we, we can't talk about tonight unless sure? I keep... Um, well, you know, I wouldn't mind, but I think some other people might. But I, I, in, in closing, um, I want to ask you a few questions that are not of my own. Um, Ira Glass, um, who you're connected to... Um, this is my cousin. I know. Um, had... Uh, you're his uncle. <laughs> and, he really, and he really wanted to be here, but he... I asked him if he might have a question, and this question, in a way, goes perfectly in the direction you're talking about, which is about habits. He said, you know, Paul, my favorite question I ever heard, Philip asked, 
was in an interview where you were asked, do you ever try to write music that doesn't sound like Philip Glass music? <laughs> and you responded with a very enthusiastic, yes, and then added that every time you fail. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. But, however, 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 if I take an, if I, it's a question of perception. If I look at a piece that I did, uh, uh, like the Einstein piece, uh, if you compare it to the other piece that you played, uh, that was done, uh, oh, 20 years later, they don't sound at all alike. So, uh, given, uh, given the breadth of time, uh, given uh, the perspective that it can include that, uh, I've not been unsuccessful, but from moment to moment, it is a failure. Errol Morris um, has a question for you. Philip, who worked as a plumber, I would have loved to talk about that, and a taxi driver, once told me, if you have a choice between a job where you get grease on your pants and a job where you don't get grease on your pants, Pick the job where you don't get grease on your pants. Who said that? My question to <laughs> Philip is... My question to Philip is, has Philip ever gotten grease on his pants writing music? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know... That brings up, I'm not going to answer that question okay. directly, but I'll answer um, it in a different way. I have more. I have uh, more. A different way. Uh, there are jobs and there are vocations. A vocation is a calling, a voca. It's from the Latin. You know Latin. I, I know you because you, the Tempest Future, you knew that right away. I did. Yeah. yeah. So, so but the, po the point is, is that uh, uh, to me, they were separate things. I could do anything to make a living. It didn't bother me. Grease, not grease. And you, loved, and you loved driving ta a taxi. I, well, well, no. What I liked was the independence of being in a car, driving around the city. It was a little scary in the, in the 70s because uh, people were getting knocked off in cabs at that time. Not so much anymore, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it was scary to go out and to go into parts of New York and, and sometimes, well, many a night I thought, this is my last night. I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna get back to the garage tonight. But uh, I, got, I did get back every night, but... Uh, and, and worked, I read that you, you got back at 1 or one thirty, and then you composed throughout the well, night. Well, about, till about 5 or 6 in the morning. Yeah, it was quiet then. So Nico Muley has a question. What is it like hearing younger generations of musicians playing your music who are fluent in your idiom, whereas older musicians can still struggle with how to well, do it? It's a, it's, uh, I'm surprised. Yes. What's it like? It's a great pleasure to hear people playing the music actually sometimes better than we played it. In fact, I, w I was in Slovenia not too long ago and there was a group playing there. I was playing at a concert the next day, but that night they were playing a piece called Music with Changing Parts, which I wrote in, like, composed in 1970. And they said, do you want to come and hear our piece? I said, no, I want to go. Uh, but then I thought about it, and I said, I do want to go. So I went to hear it, and they played it so beautifully. I said, oh. 
it was breathtaking. Uh, and um, I asked them if they recorded it. I said, yes, we've recorded it. I said, if you give me the tape, I'll publish it. And I put it out on my record label. I, I loved it. But, but what I really like, which he did, I really like is the music that I've never heard before. And, uh, and there is, uh, in, in the young generation composers, I'm hearing music that I never conceived and, and never would have. They're hearing music differently than I did. And I, I love it. Well, what is so great is that you say, I love it, and you say it with such passion, and it feels as though you are porous and open and completely ready to embrace some other lineage, some other... Well, it's not mine, but, but, but it exists for them. And somehow, I seem to be part of it, because what I've discovered is that... You seem to be what? I seem to be part of it anyway. Right. Uh, um, uh, someone was just saying that... Uh, the, the young people coming and starting now, if they, if they want to go back to the beginning of the kinds of performances, they'd have to go to the Brooklyn Academy of Music in 1983 and hear the photographer. Why would they do that? But they do do that. Uh, I, when people started playing my music, that wasn't me. First, I, I was a publisher and I, I simply didn't publish it. My, I, my reasoning was that I made my living playing music, so if I gave it to other people, I wouldn't be hired to play it myself. And to a, lar that, that, to a large extent was true. I could, my, if you wanted to hear the, my music live, you had to hire me to come play it. And it worked. I was able to stop the, the daydreams eventually because of that. And because I could write music as well. Uh, uh, but... Um, Getting back to the, uh, the, the idea of, uh, uh, I, I play the old music because I like it. When, I, other, when people, then sometimes the younger people said, can we play that music? And I, this happened about 10 years ago when people started wanting to play it. And I said, well, what do you want to do that for? They said, well, we just want to play it. And I said, well, why don't you play your own music? And they said, no, 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 we want to play your music. I said, oh, come on. And so what happened? Eventually, I gave them the music. And, I did, but, and then I, uh, I said, okay, I, I, you can take this piece or that piece, and they would be in Italy, maybe a, a, a little group of Italian players. And, I would, and he said, come, come, can you come and hear us play? And I said, well, I'm not in Italy then. He said, no, we want you to hear it. So eventually, I, I, I went to hear them play this music. And it sounded great. It sounded better than when we played it. Because when we played it, we were learning the language of the music. You have to understand, we, didn't, we hadn't developed the, the, um, the stylistic um, performance. Uh, we, 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 we hadn't learned how to play it yet. We learned, yeah. we learned later. Uh, we can play it now. But at the beginning, we were, we, we, the, the performance practice didn't exist. You think of it this way. If you could play, if you could take a piece of music, if you know the performance practice, it's not new. How can it be new? The only way it's new is if you don't, if your, fan, your hands just don't know where to go yet. So 
Uh, that was how I, that's how I, I thought of it. So, but then when I heard these people playing it, it was different. They had, they had inhaled it through the recordings and different that. They knew what it sounded like. And then they brought, let's say, a kind of interpretation. Now, this is an interesting point. Uh, I love interpretation. I love when it doesn't sound like me. And people, what I was doing, they say to us for piano, and people say, now how, I was supposed to be doing a concert and I've invited someone to come play, they said, do you want to say anything? I said, no. Do you want me to hear a play? I said, no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll hear it at the concert. I said, uh, are, are the tempos right? I said, no, no, don't pay any attention to the tempos that I wrote down, they're wrong. I said, well, what's the right one? I said, I don't know. So what I'm trying to do is get them to, I want them to become performers. I want them to become interpreters. I don't want it to sound like me. What's the point of sounding like me? I can sound like me anytime I want to. <laughs> yeah. I can just go home and play my music. But when someone plays it in a way that I couldn't play it, I actually learn something. I, I, and if a, a really good player, they find an inner voice that I didn't know I, I didn't know I didn't know was there. I mean, you know, if you're writing music the way I'm writing a lot of music, I don't always know what I'm writing. I mean, that's to say I don't know that I, it's not that I don't know it, it's that I don't understand the... Where it's coming from. No, not, no, not, not, no, not, not that. No. I don't know the implications of it. I don't know what the interpretations can be. All I know is what I can do, which is damn little. Philip Glass. <laughs> Thank you. All right, that was Philip Glass in conversation with Paul Holengraber. Check out all of the live past programs at nypl.org live. And for those of you in or coming to New York in the fall, we're going to be announcing the fall lineup pretty soon. You can find that at the same address, nypl.org live. As for this podcast, as always, we're grateful to you for listening. And if you're enjoying it, we'd really appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Next week, novelist Min Jin Lee discussing her latest book, Pachinko, with author Simon Winchester. <laughs>